our guest, um, and yeah, as I said, they are a team, host a podcast called How to Heretic. Um, they call themselves Uncle Mark and Uncle Dan as a way to uh, build some familiarity with their audience and to, to build some warmth with their mm-hmm. And also because they have day jobs that could quickly get sticky if someone decided to make a big fuss about their um, atheist activism. Um, so I'm going to, at this point, um, turn it over to Uncle Mark and Uncle Dan, and the room is yours. All right. You, you were breaking up on me a little bit there. Am I okay to go ahead, yes. Judy? Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Okay. So hi, everyone. Uh, we're so delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting us to uh, meet with you this afternoon. Um, we're, uh, it's been a pretty lonely time for all of us. So do you, you guys do this every week, don't you? Or do you do it once a month? Every week. Every week. That's so nice. awesome. Good That's for you. Um, so if you're not familiar with our show, um, <clears throat> we're the How-To Heretic guys. Uh, we're normally Uncle Dan, Uncle, Uncle Doug, and Uncle Mark, as, as Judy was saying. Uh, Doug had a scheduling conflict, so he's sorry. Um, I'm, it kind of all started when I met Dan several years ago, which was awesome because I was already a big fan of his long-running podcast, Thank God I'm Atheist, uh, that he hosts with his co-host, Frank. And I, some of you might be aware of that show. It's been on for eight, eight years, Dan? Uh, it, this is, uh, it'll be 10 years in, in uh, November. Wow. That's crazy. So yeah. 10 years, look at his beard. Right? That's, that's this an old what, podcast. This is what it does to you. <laughs> so anyway, we, we hit it off, and, and I was delighted to be asked to fill in for Frank on their podcast on days that Frank could make the show, and Dan and I hit it off even more. So it was really after the shock of the 2016 election, and we were keenly aware of the wave of Christian nationalism and regressive forces that had swept Trump into office. And what a long, dark night that was going to mean for vulnerable people in this country and elsewhere. So Dan and I decided for both our sake and hopefully the sakes of people in need out there in the webverse that we needed to do something to push back the darkness. Uh, And I know for me anyway, one of the big inspirations for our show was Dan Savage's amazing It Gets Better campaign for LGBTQ youth. Um, And in the wake of the massive anti-LGBTQ machinations of the Bush years, Savage decided if you, I'm sure you're all familiar with his project, he realized he could beam a message to kids trapped in religious or dangerous or conservative settings and, uh, and that he could talk to them in places where hope was in short supply. So we felt like this was a brilliant mission statement for us, trying to throw a, a lifeline to people who were stuck or isolated and frightened and let them know that, no, you're not crazy. It's, it's everyone around you that's crazy. And uh, we pretty much went from there. <coughs> Sorry. So if you're not familiar with it, with our, with okay, you too. Okay. When when we started, we looked around the podverse and saw that there was not a lot of outreach to the newly out or the leaving curious. Um, uh, There's loads of great atheist podcasts out there, and uh, we're friends with quite a number of those shows. But they mostly tend to be more strident or even militant in their tone, and for people more more well-versed in the literature and personalities of atheism, which is great, and obviously that's part of the process and a big part of the community. But as you all, all well know, 
we atheists are the most feared and hated group. Oh, said so the recording stopped, Judy. Did you want to keep recording? Um, my, I just lost my um, connection, so that's why. Oh. Should we keep going then, Judy? Yes, yes, keep going. Okay. So anyway, that's why we, we call ourselves uncles. And I think we all... All right. <laughs> I think we all have an uncle we dread seeing at Thanksgiving. And our aim was to be the opposite of that. Um, <clears throat> and just FYI... The, uh, and, and that is until we brought in Uncle Doug. Uh, yeah, and exactly. You got to have the one bad uncle and then the, the other uncles look much better by comparison. So. <laughs> you you got to bring in a, a ringer. So uh, as an uncle family, we've had three or four Thanksgivings together, FYI, and they've always been amazingly fun. Yeah. <clears throat> so as far as a format, we lean towards social critique, helping people look at aspects of faith with a more critical and hopefully, hopefully comedic eye. And we try to bring in a wide variety of experts to help people engage with things that may have been forbidden in their religious lives that they now want to navigate, but might not have the tools to do it. So we've talked to experts and had our how-to segments about drinking and swearing, engaging with once forbidden media like R-rated movies and popular music, dealing with latent homophobia or trans issues, dealing with death post-religion, trying to disentangle purity culture programming, thinking about abortion, dealing with familial estrangement, boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we also love to deconstruct things like the Bible and Book of Mormon stories and show what hot garbage these things were that we were once taught were great tales of morality, but are almost without exception the opposite. <clears throat> I think that's Dan's favorite field to, uh, to plow is the absurdity and evil of the Bible. Um, we have another it's, segment called Graveyard. It's a never-ending flowing font. It's, you're just, you can't exhaust it. There's no bottom to that well, we find, and it's kind of unfortunate. But uh, we have a segment called Graveyard of the Gods, where we drill into a dead god from a random culture from around the world, <clears throat> and we have a lot of fun with that. Uh, also take a good hard look at specific religions and cults, which is kind of my favorite corner to work. Um, having been raised in a cult, I find myself endlessly fascinated by them. Um, we've examined around 40 of them so far, including, you know, well-known ones like the People's Temple or the Ugandan Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God or Am Shinrikyo, the Nuwabian Nation, Jehovah's Witnesses, Nexium, the Anthill Kids, Mormon Offshoots, just to name a few. Um, <clears throat> our show is usually three different topic segments uh, or two plus an interview, and it's not centered around current events, though the news demands that of us sometimes. Uh, and our website, website thehowtoheretic.com, is searchable by keywords. So if there's any particular subject you might want a medium dive from three Mormon bozos into, uh, you can search for it there. Uh, and we're over, I think we're well over 500 different segments at this point as we approach four years on the air. So that's kind of the show and the format. And if you guys are interested, maybe we can talk a little bit about our own journeys um, from out, out of a high demand uh, religion into the, the world of atheist podcasting. So enough out of me, Dan, you want to talk about Dan for a minute? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you covered all, all of our bases. I, I got into podcasting because I, like you said, 10 years, almost 10 years ago, I was, uh, I was running, I had a blog. Do you remember blogs? Uh, I had a <laughs> blog called, thank God I'm atheist. And I, 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 
I don't know. I, I like to write, but uh, I, I prefer to talk. I like to interact. And so I thought maybe this could be something in an audio format. And uh, my friend Frank and I decided to do that. And, uh, and yeah, actually, I think you, Mark, wrote into our podcast at one point and, uh, and, and had some very, uh, just a really funny email. Mm. And Frank said to me, you know who that guy, who that is, right? And I was like, no, I have no idea who that is. But uh, you guys don't know this, but around Salt Lake City, Mark is a fairly famous person, uh, just, just in social circles. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Salt Lake famous. It's a big deal. Ba- back in the day, he was the guy with the mustache. So now that you, you've ruined it, now that you've grown out your beard. So. Yeah, my, my stress, plague stress beard. <laughs> just, who who are you to talk? I, well, I'm, I'm just saying you had that glorious mustache. And that I did. Was, that was, that, it, it was so iconic. It was, I did for a while. I'm, so I'm shocked that there isn't a mural of your mustache somewhere. <laughs> like and then, yeah, we, we talked about this. And, uh, and I, you know, it's funny because we, when we talk about the show, we talk about it in terms of, of it being for, for those who are newly out of their religions. But I would say that most of our listeners are probably not that. Most of our listeners are people who are uh, long since atheists, but just get a kick out of the way we, uh, we make fun of all of the beliefs. We hold obviously nothing sacred. And so we just go after whoever we have a, a, a hankering to go after. So, yeah, I think that's true. A lot of a huge amount of our, our listenership, I was surprised are, you know, kind of atheists like you all. Who've, who've probably been in the business a long time, <clears throat> you know, and have spent a lot of time outside of it. Uh, um, but like I was saying earlier, you know, if you, we're, we're good friends with the, with No Illusions and Eli Bosnick and, and Heath Enright from, from that side, the Puzzle and the Thunderstorm guys that do God Awful Movies, which is a hilarious show if you're not familiar with that, and Scathing Atheist. And they're, they're, they're pretty strident. Like that's, they throw a lot of elbows and it's rough stuff. And I think if you were, a, if you a were just in a, in a, yeah, totally in a fun way, but I think if you were a, you know, a, a young person coming out of some kind of Pentecostal or evangelical um, or tradition Mormon. or Mormon, and it's like, that was the first thing you heard atheists saying, you might run screaming back into the pews. So, so that was kind of the goal. I, I think we've achieved it in some ways, Dan. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'll speak a little bit about my journey out. I'm the I'm the oldest of these three podcasters, and I am the gayest. Yeah. So, uh, growing up in the Salt Lake City of the '70s and '80s, um, you may be shocked to realize was not the uh, safest and healthiest place for a young queer kid in the closet to be. Um, <clears throat> I went to a high school, a large urban high school, and I don't know. If, if there were any non-Mormons there, they didn't stick their heads up. So I was completely surrounded, um, completely surrounded by Mormons. Everyone I knew, that my, all my teachers, my doctors, my, everybody in my life was a Mormon. And uh, at you know, 10 or 11 years old, as I began to realize there was something about me which I must not reveal to anyone, um, the, you all probably see Mormonism now as quite homophobic. Well... <laughs> 40 years ago, it was amazing. Um, it was far, far worse. So it, that began the split for me where I saw that there was never going to be a place at that table for me. So I just had to k- kind of keep my head down, stay in the closet, stay alive. Um, you know, we have a, a 
youth suicide epidemic and always have in Utah for that very reason. So it was just a matter of kind of trying to stay alive till I could get out. So my queerness weirdly was the kind of the gift that helped me see through the ugliness of it and the bullshit of it at a very young age. Um, It wasn't a great next 10, 12 years of my life to try to get through behind enemy lines. Um, But I got out. So I I kind of was, before I even understood what it meant, I kind of was reflexively an atheist from a pretty young age. Um, And then there's my little brother, Doug, who's the third, the third dope on the show. And he went all in. So he saw me and my two older brothers just being fuck ups of varying various degrees and decided the only way he was ever going to get any love was to be the perfect Mormon. So he set out to be the perfect Mormon um, in every conceivable way. And, uh, you know, went to BYU, uh, then went on his mission and the cracks started to form on his mission. And, uh, um, you know, he just saw that the world, he, he was sent to Honduras, which is, you know, a beautiful country full of amazing people, but it's also incredibly poor. And I believe our former president would have called it a shithole country. (laughs) He probably would have called it a shithole country, but who gives a fuck about that guy anymore? Right. Um, So uh, he he saw that the world that he was taught at BYU and then the missionary training center is not what the world was. And that, you know, all the systems for these people had failed. So it took him a little longer to get out of Mormonism. Um, but he finally did it, uh, thank God. So now he's the one family member I have left in the world, uh, essentially. So that's kind of our story. That's how three Mormon dummies ended up with an atheist, uh, a celebrated, I would say, atheist podcast, or two of them in dance. So celebrated dance. definitely, uh, at least by like my mom and a couple of our friends. So I would... <laughs> yeah. Probably beyond that, nobody knows who the hell we are. So yeah, that's yeah. So that's the story. We'd there be happy go. to talk about anything, or or just we we can lie too. Yeah, we'll we'll just tell we'll just keep telling stories, and you guys won't know which ones of them are true. So <laughs> we can just keep going forever. Does anybody have any questions or anything? Well, I I could talk a little bit about. Uh, so I, th- I think Joe uh, asked earlier, like wh- when we left, when you and I left the Mormon church. So I'm, I, you, I mean, you talked about, you know, you, you, you had the easy way out. You knew it was going to reject. It was you. amazing. It was such an easy way out. Yeah. Yeah. Super easy. Super yeah. easy. No, I, so I, I was sort of midway between you and Doug on that front, uh, which yeah. is to say that I was a true believer as a young person, as a kid. And then when, uh, when I was starting, because, you know, as you guys probably know, because I've probably rung your doorbell, every young Mormon is, is expected to, uh, every young Mormon man, some women do it, but every, ki- every young Mormon man is expected to go on a mission. And uh, that mission isn't just like a, a two-week trip to, to Haiti or whatever to, you know, help build a house and give out some Bibles the way it is in evangelical circles in a mormon uh world a mission is two years and you go to some godforsaken place like honduras with my luck it would have been i don't know alabama or something i would have wanted to go 
to someplace cool and learn a language, but I'm sure I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had that kind of luck. Anyway, I was, I was staring down the barrel of that time. At that time, you went when you were 19 years old, and I was 18 and, uh, and in a bit of a crisis. And, you know, I was a true believer, but I, uh, I was ready to, I, 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 I had, what I had realized was, though I believed it all, I had never gotten the confirmation in my heart that I knew that I was promised by Mormonism. Like they talk about it all the time. You're going to get this, this burning in your bosom or this confirmation from God that you're going to, that, that, that it's all going, that it's all true. So I prayed and I asked for that. And I was like, okay, uh, God, give it to me. And, and you were, yeah, but you were trying, weren't like you oh. were earnestly, earnestly, earnestly trying to find that, that feeling because you wanted to believe all this was real. Oh yeah. And I, and the yeah. thing is, I, I'm a, I've always been a person of like sort of a ridic ridiculous uh, levels of integrity. I, integrity is the wrong word. Just, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't. What the fuck are you talking about? Hey, hey, hey. I'll, always under the bus with you. Anyway, uh, I, uh, so I, what I knew was if I went on a mission and I wasn't absolutely certain that I believed it, then how could I teach anybody else? Which, by the way, is not what most kids do. Most guys just go out on their mission and they don't care. Or they don't think about it at all, which is what I was getting at. Anyway, I started to pray and I spent, I, I spent probably six months just begging God. I did nothing. I would read scripture and I would pray and I would fast and I would just do anything I could to get God to talk to me. Uh, weirdly, guys who don't exist tend not to talk to you. And so he didn't. Uh, and so I went to my bishop, who is, you know, in a, the equivalent of a sort of parish priest in Mormonism, and not someone who's trained, by the way. In Mormonism, you don't get a trained priest. What you get is a... Uh, a dentist who got it for four years, right? The, just the yeah. guy in the neighborhood whose turn it is, really. It's just yeah. one, of, one of the people. But I mean, he's probably a well-respected, well-liked guy in the neighborhood. Anyway, I go, to, I go to my bishop and I just say, hey, I, don't, I haven't gotten this confirmation yet. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm about to go on my mission and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, we, I can take you through, why don't you go to the temple, which is a big deal for Mormons. You know, you, nobody's allowed to go into the temple until you're like, specially, you get a special dispensation from your bishop. And then it's this very important thing. A very intense face-to-face -face confession sort of thing. <clears throat> well, yes, the, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, the interview to be allowed to go to the temple is that. Yeah. So I, he, I said, great, let's do that. He sat me down for my interview and he opened up his, he had a binder full of, you know, all, all the questions that he, that he asks when it's time for that. And, uh, and we looked and, you know, I sat down across from him and he said, do you believe in God, the eternal father, and in his son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost? And he just sort of looked at me and I was like, that's kind of the problem. I, uh, I, I don't know. And he was like, and he stared at me and I stared back at him and I was like, oh, I, I have to say yes, don't I? And he said, uh-huh. And I went, well... I can't. So, and I stood up and shook his hand and he shook my hand and I walked out and that was the end. I never went back. So that's my story. I see we have some hands up. 
do should uh should we call on them is that uh i i guess jim you've got your yeah jim's got his hands up if i see him i'll interrupt i just didn't want to interrupt what you were saying oh so okay yeah no that's fine so jim go ahead jim go ahead yeah. okay well all right i've unmuted myself and uh so far it's been a a very interesting discussion although our connection is unstable according to the word i just got on the screen oh. in any case uh in view of the fact that uh, uh religion is increasingly viewed as empty of information nothing new to say what it does have to say is uh, something that's not necessarily of any consequence to the real world and uh would you agree with the proposition that uh, never has so much been said about so little in fact about nothing at all uh, and yet there's no greater fun than that that i and many others everybody here has than to uh, than to than to be here and talk about this very subject and i think maybe it's because it's it's a matter of social importance not religious not philosophical but because so many people persist in this in these weird belief systems that the only thing that we can contribute as individuals is our willingness to uh, discuss it and and to make it uh, to continue the critical stream that's necessary to uh, end it what do you think daniel you know i i <clears throat> i agree with you i think that it you know we at least in uh what I don't like referring to in, in the developed world, uh, it's very clear that religion is dying as a concept. Uh, religion seems to have been this, uh, this sort of, you know, ways of making sense of the world. And we actually have much more effective ways of making sense of the world now. You know, we, we have science, which seems to do a much better job than just going, uh, he done it. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think when something, when a concept like religion is in its sort of final stages, but there are still so many people who would, who adhere to it, I think it's really important that we have these conversations and that we have them frequently and that we have them not just among ourselves, which obviously this is great, uh, us sort of talking with ourselves and with each other, uh, but also sort of visibly out in the open uh having having conversations about uh religion and and why it it exists and why we don't believe in it anymore and why we can safely reject the the propositions of religion yeah i jim i think your point is really great that i love how you said you know never you know have we talked more about something that matters less or however however you put it but you know it's still unfortunately it's still such a it's such a muscular and aggressive force in the world. And so I think a lot of times, you know, when Dan and, and Doug and I are talking about religion, it's almost an act of self-defense, right? Like uh, atheists have to know about the Bible as an act of self-defense in this country, certainly. So, um, but it's, it's also really interesting that I got, we occasionally get people approaching us to come on the show that have no idea what the show is, right? So we got an email the other day, Dan, that was, um, from this woman, a young woman, and she calls herself like 
<clears throat> the 30 year old virgin or something. Hmm. And she wanted to come on the show and talk about um, being a progressive Christian and living a, a biblically sexual worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, I saw something about that in the emails. Yeah. And I was like, I think you might not know much about our show. Do you know who we are talking to? <laughs> and so we got into this back and forth and I'll, I'll admit I was a little bit of a dick in the early emails, but then she was like, Hey, you're being kind of a dick. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. I said, let me, let me explain my show to you. And so I said, look, the people that listen to our show are not novices about the Bible, right? Right. Your problem is they've had, it's not that they've had too little, it's that they've had too much. Yeah. So you're not going to come on here and in the same verses and chapters they've read their whole lives, unlock some new mystery. There's not some, there's not a new edition with 12 interesting pages. You know, there's no secrets left in it. So after I kind of explained that to her, she's I'm like, look, you don't give a drowning man more water. You throw him <laughs> a lifeline. You coming on the show is the more water. The people who yeah. listen to our show very often are survivors of religious trauma. Now, listen, Mark, you may have missed something in this. Maybe mm. she was trying to come on our show so that we could rescue her. Oh, <laughs> honestly, that's a woman in need of saving right there. Yeah. So I, once I explained that to her, she's like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining it. I'm like, or you could just listen to one episode of the show and you could have saved yourself an email. But, but I agree with you. It's like, I, I, I don't, there are times I don't want to talk about religion, but it's, I've chosen to do this every week. And, and it is, it is kind of a defensive posture that many of us have to take. We live in but, Utah, for fuck's sake. But we, we have a lot of fun with it. And that's, yeah. what, that's when it gets great, is when you can just really just enjoy. I mean, if, if the last four years have taught us anything, it's that if you're going to be okay in this world, you've got to come to terms with the sort of collective stupidity of humanity. And uh, I, feel like, uh, I feel like we like to play around with the... Uh, which is the craziness that is the shit that humans come up with. And, uh, and we have a lot of fun with that. And you do it very well. And now I'm <laughs> going to turn it over to Jim Young. He has a question or comment. Yes, I did have a question. Um, since it is a, a, we mentioned it's a podcast. And my question is you have a, a phone number where people can call in interesting uh, no we 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 actually toyed with that idea a little bit in the when we were planning the show didn't we mark so yeah i think jim you're talking about like uh, like the the um atheist experience that matt dillanti does which is like this it's kind of a, a sort of a live stream version where callers can call in and have live conversations we i think we did talk about that but we've never there's, there's no space for anybody but us on the show, is there, Dan? Right. No, we're, <laughs> look, we're three egos who each want the other two out anyway. So, like, we can't allow anybody. Who's the third person. ego? Oh, it's our, uh, we have a missing member today. He's yeah. not able to join. Oh, okay. Uncle yeah. Doug. Yeah. So, and so, yeah. so, if somebody wants to listen, uh, how do they find your podcast? A variety of information. Is that information going to be available today? Yep, we can we can provide that information. If you have iTunes, uh, you can find it there. Well, I don't have iTunes. Um, 
We also, I, we, I, I, I have a Windows 10 computer. With you can internet. find it through our website. If you go to our website, howtoheretic.com, mm-hmm. um, you can listen okay. to it right off the website from, from your computer if you want. You can also, we also have a YouTube channel so you can watch the, you, or you don't watch because there's no video. The, the audio's there. The audio's on YouTube as well. Yeah. So. But yeah, howtoheretic.com. Uh, okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll look you up and uh, listen to a couple of uh, broadcasts. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, Let us, yeah. And if you don't... Well, I, I'm sure I will. I, I, I watch or listen, either one, to uh, hundreds of YouTube videos oh, there every you go. week. And there you go. The, ma- the vast majority of them are atheist or free thought or liberal in some respect. So um, we should uh, fit right in with your with your listening. With your, your I'm sure you will. I'm a I'm an advocate for human rights. So uh, that's great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Jim. Uh, Thank you. Also, um, I there will be links to I put links in the email notifications to people uh, to your podcast and to your site. So uh, if you check your email, Jim, you'll find links in there to it too. But it. It's pretty easy to find how to heretic.com. Uh, Michael has his hand up, but first I have to ask Michael, what's the dig? Be- Michael's an anthropology person, so I was wondering what's oh. the dig behind him. Um, That's actually uh, Grave Creek Mounds in West Virginia. Oh, oh. I'm from West Virginia. <laughs> and a yeah, good place for you to go visit sometime. Yes. Okay, I'm uh, going to make an assumption here because I'm not a Mormon, but I'm going to guess that during this two-year period, you probably got like a lot of doors slammed in your face, a lot of rejection going on. And I'm just wondering, like during this two-year period, is there any sort of like drop-off where people kind of start really questioning religion during this two-year period where they start seeing like, you know, oh, the outside world maybe isn't so uh, warm to our position as we've been taught. And if there isn't, I'm also kind of wondering, is there something like within the Mormon church itself where they kind of explain this away or have some sort of philosophy to kind of explain the negativity of the outside world? Well, I think, uh, one. so again, neither Mark nor I went on a mission. Only Doug, our missing third, uh, the missing third of our, of our show went on a mission. But I think we can actually speak to that because- we Yeah, we know an awful lot about missions without having gone on them. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting is the door getting shut in your face on a mission is great for the church. They love it. And it's the same reason, I think, that, uh, that the Amish feel safe sending their kids out on Rumspringa, or, you know, that, because what they want- It's a trap. Is for you to feel like it's you against the world. They want you to feel like uh, be, because they, they do, they set up a narrative wherein the world's going to reject you. You're going to be put upon. I mean, we all know that not, there's nothing Christianity loves more than being, uh, uh, persecuted than feeling persecuted, which is why they have this insane story, uh, that somehow in the United States where Christians make up 70 some odd percent of the, of the populace, they're the persecuted ones. Yeah, and Mormons have a very intense persecution narrative. Like, oh yeah, Book yeah. of Exodus it, level persecution narrative they have. They've they've taken it to a a whole ever other level. So, 
So yeah, every time so, the door gets slammed in their face, it's meant to be a confirmation of the, the sort of the, the wickedness of the world versus their own piety and, and, uh, and, and purity and goodness. So it does, I mean, I'm sure that for some, it sways their, it, you know, it rocks their faith a bit. Uh, but for others, it, it, you know, it, they've got a narrative in place to, to it's make radicalizing sure in a, in a way. Yeah. Right. It's so that's, that's why they, they send these kids consciously. It used to be 19. They've now lowered the age kind of like, you know, in Germany at the end of the war, when not, they started drafting 14 year olds. <laughs> um, it's, it's now you 18 year olds can go. And if there's something I want much less than a 19-year-old know-it-all knocking on my door and telling me everything I think about the world is wrong, it's an 18-year-old one. Right. But um, so there is that part of it that Dan's talking about where it is, it's, it's a win-win for the church. You get a convert, great. You get a door slammed in your face, great. Either way, you've, you've either dug yourself like deeper as a tick into the doctrine because you feel like a martyr or you've got another tithe payer. Um, but it's important to know about the, two, the Mormon two-year mission too. You pay for the entire thing. The church, which has recently been exposed to have in just one secret slush fund, north of $100 billion, pays nothing. Yeah. You pay for the whole experience. And, you know, a lot of Mormon kids come from humble circumstances and they've got to go live in Tokyo for two years. Um, and then you are stuck with a, a stranger and you sleep in the same room. You may never be apart except when you are literally on the toilet or in the shower, and then you're supposed to leave the door open. So, uh, because they don't want you to any funny business in there. Right. So uh, it's an incredibly intensive experience for, for people. And most of them come out with a more deep commitment, deeper commitment to the church but there are people like we were discussing my brother earlier who um, he, the cracks began to form and uh, you know, he went to this very poor place where he saw that people were suffering for no good reason at all. Right. It was a failure of politics. It was a failure of churches. It was a failure of all the institutions. And he really started to say, to see that the world is not what BYU promised him it would be. Right. And then we've had a missionary, actually we had two missionaries, active missionaries on our show. Who yeah, they were got, out in the mission field. They were in so, somewhere in in, uh, in in middle America. Somewhere. Middle America. And they had been, their door knocking had been stopped because of COVID. The Mormon church was one of the churches in America that got COVID mostly right. It actually stopped in-person church. It, it encouraged masks. It did, you know, it's still fucked up. But so these missionaries were just stuck in their apartment and they're, they're these young Gen Z guys so they took their church phones and cracked them so that they could, because they can't use the internet, they can't watch movies, they can't read newspapers, they can't watch TV. So these two guys are stuck at home. So they figured out a way to crack their phones so they could watch Avengers and, you know, um, have something to do. And through that, they got access to other information they weren't meant to have. And they essentially became atheists on their mission. Um, then they came on our show and, uh, I've since met one of them. He's come home, uh, to Salt. He lives in Salt Lake. So I just, I met him the other day. Oh, you met um, him. I didn't know that. He needed to borrow a drill. 
And he didn't want to drive to his parents' house in Provo to get a drill. So I said, no, no, don't drive to Provo, which is horrible. Come, come get it. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are missionaries who get a hold of something that's called the CES letter, which in Mormonism is this very dangerous text. Um, yeah. It was literally written ostensibly as a letter by a, a believer to the, C the CES is the church education system. And this was meant to be written to uh, a guy in the, in the church education system just to say, hey, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm learning online that I don't have an answer for. And uh, it's shaking my faith a little bit. Can you help me answer these questions? And it has since blossomed into this. Uh, in, in, I, I think they, they have their own uh, uh, nonprofit organization associated with it. And it's just like, Every, all of the questions that, that you can bring up about the Mormon church are asked in this letter. And yeah. it's just, and it's very know. focused on the book of Mormon, right? For the most part and some other Mormon canon, but it's, it's, it's pretty deadly. Well, and Mormon history as well. Yeah. It's pretty deadly to the church. And it's, yeah. I mean, if you were, if you, if you were a never Mormon and you read it, you probably would have no fucking idea what any of it is even <laughs> yeah. about. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, in inside baseball stuff. Yeah, but some uh, missionaries get a hold of that, and it is incredibly troubling to to them. And then they'll go to their ecclesiastical authorities and say, "What about this?" And they just have no answers to it. They just say, "Don't read that." Hmm. Um, and somebody just uh, Gary asks, "What is the point of the mission trip? What is what is it supposed to bring or confer?" Hmm. Just more Mormons. Well, right? so I I would say that the it's twofold. So yes, the the ostensible reason is. You know, these guys go door to door trying to talk people into becoming a Mormon. Uh, and by the way, the way that they don't do that is by telling them everything that Mormonism believes. They tell them some very uh, palatable bullet points, and then that's kind of it. Uh, but the other reason, the reason that they don't talk about is, is what we were talking about, which is to solidify you know, to take guys and, and young women right at the moment when they might when they're probably most likely to be questioning the church. When their life is supposed to be expanding and taking off and college and all that stuff, right? And, right. And then they just, uh, and then they just get their hooks in them. You know, when you spend two years devoting yourself to the church, when you should be sort of exploring the, the world, uh, and they tell you that you are exploring the world, but you're not, even if you're in, you know, Italy or whatever, you're still not actually exploring the world. You're just, you know, focused on the church in Italian. And let me say something about that really quick. So my little brother, as I said, went to Honduras. They were an extremely predacious mission and they would do things like they would go to, you know, Central America, like most Latin America is mad for soccer. So they would go to a, like a little humble soccer field where there'd be a bunch of 12, 13, 14 year old boys playing soccer. And they'd say, Hey, do you guys want lunch? You want to, you want to, you want a sandwich? They'd be like, sure. And he'd be like, okay, great, come with us. And they would take them to the to the ocean or to the river, baptize them without their parents' knowledge, or the parents knowing that they had gone somewhere with two fucking Yankees, baptize them. On the way back, they'd buy them a sandwich and a Coke and say, Thanks, great. And so they'd get their numbers. So they were literally baptizing minors without consent. <clears throat> and Doug probably, I can't remember how many people he said he baptized, but I think it was north of a hundred. It was more than a hundred. It was, and then was Frank's uh, Frank Dan's partner on his other podcast went to Rome, uh, 
Awesome place to go spend two years. And how many people did he convert? Uh, that would be zero. Yeah. That would be, <laughs> apparently, strangely, people in Rome seem to have been decided on the, on the, the question of- They've religion. had enough religion, I think, yeah. Should we answer some more we questions? A, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have a few more questions. Yeah. Uh, Amy had a question in chat. I don't know if that's what she's got her hand up about. Um, or, oh, what? I don't even remember what I put in chat at this point. Um, but my question is, how many converts do you guys really get on these missions? I mean, um, I the only Mormons I've ever met were ones that were family, you know, born into a Mormon family. Um, I've never met a Mormon convert. And so I was just curious if you have, if there are stats on something like that. I don't know if there's, are, are there reliable stats, Dan? I just, I don't trust anything the church yeah. puts out. And they yeah. play their, their cards pretty close to their vest on that one. I think that uh, just going off of um, sort of the anecdotes of, of friends, uh, a lot of friends who have been on missions, I would say that Doug's experience of having o over 100 is very, very rare. And really, it's probably more like two or three on average. On, on a whole mission, yeah. And, and then, there, then there's the retention issue. So in, oh, yeah, they don't retain the, anybody. Especially in the, in the developing world, you know, there are certain social forces, force, you know, people will try different things out to see if they get a result, you know, an improvement in their lives. So Doug's, from Doug's estimation, he th doesn't think a single person he baptized is probably still a Mormon in Honduras. So Mormons claim a membership of around 15 million um, I think active members that still pay tithes and go to church is, I would be amazed if it was half that. It would, yeah, it's gotta be well below half. It's yeah, so because, because the thing million. is, here's, somebody goes out on a mission to somewhere in, in rural Africa and they, you know, this, that, this is the story of the, the Book of Mormon, the musical, right? Uh, somebody, you know, go to some, some place in rural Africa. They say, hey, do you want to be with your family forever? We can make that happen for you. Uh, that's their big pitch to, uh, to things. And then they also say, and we've got a great support system, support network for our members, which they do. You know, they'll, they'll, if, if you fall on hard times, they'll help you get some food. They'll help you with, with some stuff. So that's good. And so they get members. And then, you know, after the baptism and stuff, they start to layer on some of the things that maybe they weren't, they didn't push too hard when they were before the baptism, like, Oh, by the way, there's no sex before marriage. There's no drinking alcohol. There's no, you know, this, all of these. And their racial history. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Well, they're never going to tell you about the racial history of the Mormon church. You'll have to find that out on your own if you want to know. Yeah. So they, they you know, they, they are getting numbers in, in Africa, in South America, in parts of Asia. But those people are, they, those people may have less access to internet, internet access than, than, a lot of Western countries, because when Pete, you know, it's like if Scientology, a Scientologist, the first time a Scientologist or a um, Hare Krishna approached you on the street, you're like, wow, free book. Okay, cool. All you have to do is go home and Google it. And you're like, oh, fuck this shit. Right. <clears throat> and that's what people in, in countries with internet access and areas with that will do when, when they're approached by Mormons is they'll say, wow, nice guys. They were very sweet. Um, clickety, clickety, click. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. So. Yeah, um, I used to work with a, a man who was a 
We organize Church of Latter-day Saints. Oh, mm. yeah. Oh, we're not Salt Lake City. No, no, no. Not no, they aren't. They aren't. <laughs> and they're actually way cooler than, than the Mormons that we grew up with. That group, that, that group, they, they ordained women. They, to the they have a, they have a Oh, it's they like reformed Mormon. <laughs> like What's I that? grew up reformed Judaism. That's yeah. like reformed Mormon. Yeah, it kind yeah. of is. It kind of is. <laughs> they're, they're in very, Missouri mostly. They're, they're a bit yeah. more chill. They, they're, they're what happened when Joseph Smith was killed <clears throat> and... Uh, Brigham Young kind of won the power struggle to become the Stalin of the Mormon church and moved everybody out West. They stayed behind and it was Joseph's first wife and his son that kind of were the, the origin of him. Okay. That. Sorry. I stepped on Jenny. Um, yeah. She's had her hand up for quite a while. So Jenny, if you'd like to ask your question now. Well, I'd like to first say that I'm one of the few atheists confirmed devout atheists, if, if you will, um, anti-theist who uh, never read the Bible, um, oh. spent very little time in church, thank goodness. Lucky um, you. Don't what, start now. No, yeah, no, it's, no, a, it's a terrible no, book. You don't need to read it. There's no danger. There's no okay. danger. Uh, it's completely safe from me. So for me, I think one of the things when I was 10, 11, 12, I started understanding that there is such a thing called a missionary. And... Uh, I was really troubled by that. And my, my father was active in the civil rights movement. So I think we, we were con, kind of uh, expected to think critically. So I said to, I said to my parents, I said, uh, I, they were talking a little bit about missionaries and I don't know if our church has any, do you? And they said, oh, I don't know. Maybe, they, maybe our church has And My dad mostly played tennis on Sunday. So, <laughs> um, so uh, I said, well, when, when somebody goes on a mission and they go to another country or another region, the people there, they may already have a religion that they're perfectly happy with. Is that right? And my father said, well, yes, sure. And, uh, uh, and I said, well, so what gives anybody the right to try to change that? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's completely illogical to me. And he said, well, you're, you're thinking quite logically in my opinion. So it was a couple years later, I asked him, Dad, are you an atheist? And he said, yes, I am. I have been for most of my life. And, uh, wow. I, and I said, he said, how did you know? And I said, well, I asked you that question about the missions. And I was pretty sure. And I said, I said, why didn't you just tell me you were an atheist? He said, well, we want you to make these, come to these decisions on your own. Now, my father was, uh, like I said, a confirmed atheist from a young age. Um, uh, and one of the reasons uh, he went, he fought in World War II. He was already leaning that way, but you know that that took him over the top. So um, I, I guess uh, war can either make you religious or make you less religious. But anyway, I was just curious about how people. You know, I don't know what kind of reliable numbers there could be about people going on a mission and saying, "Hey, maybe their religion's better than mine." or just as good as mine, hmm. or equal to mine, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people writing these days in the, in the post-religious um, you know, literature that really that all missionary work is colonialism, right? It's all colonialism, and at base, it's kind of all racist. And, uh, you know, when 
when the, certainly during the conquest of the Americas and the Crusades, we looked at a, we saw a very muscular sort of missionary effort that ended up, you know, killing tens of millions of people. And uh, just because now it has a, a, a more pleasant face and there's, you know, what's less threatening than a picture of a couple Mormon missionaries smiling and waving, right? Writing their 10 speeds around, but it's still, it's still colonialism. They're still, they know that they're going to get converts in Kenya and, you, you, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and um, in Southeast Asia. So that's where they're sending them. And I, and especially a, a religion with as, as insidious a racist um, past and, and doctrine as Mormonism. Um, yeah. It's just, to me, it's just colonialism. I think your, your dad is, was completely right. And you're completely right. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Joe Reinhardt, you had your hand up. Did you have a question? Well, uh, Amy had asked my question. I oh, wanted okay. to know what the, what the ratio of doors to converts was. Yeah. Okay. I wish we knew. They'll never say. <laughs> they will, no. They, hide they know, their... though. I will say this. They know the answer to that question because if there's one thing that, the, that you can say about Mormons, they keep copious accurate records. So mm. the, the, each of the Mormons is expected to report exactly how many doors they knocked on, who they spoke to, how long uh, they were how, there, how long they talked, all that sort of thing. By the way, uh, it is the official, you, you guys should know this because you may get a knock on your door at, at some point in your life from Mormon missionaries. People have asked us a lot, like how we think they should respond when someone, you know, when a Mormon missionary knocks on your door. And this is just for Mormons. I, this does not apply to Jehovah's Witnesses or anything like that. But if Mormon's kids come to your door, and they want to convert you, feel free to A, say, actually, I'm not interested in, uh, in a religion, but first, would you like some water? That's always nice. Can I bring, you know, would you like to come in and just have a glass of water or something? Use the bathroom. Do you need to chill for a minute? Right. But then feel free to ask them to do, to help you do chores around your house. It's true. Because, because <laughs> they'll they, do it. They will do it. They, they'll actually appreciate it because honestly, they hate going door to door talking about religion and they have to do service. There's a, there's a required amount of service that they are required to do. And so like, if you need your piano moved, tell them to get a couple more Mormons to come in and they will move your piano for free. Absolutely. No question. With a smile ask. on their face, they'll do it. It's they'll be they thrilled. It's, and it's one of the ways they, they know they can get their foot in the door is they say, do you need any help around the house? And they're being sincere. Yeah. If you, if you need to, put, you know, clean your garage, there, invite them in. I promise you there is no ethical problem here. Go ahead and have them, like, if you, if you want to, like, lay some concrete in the backyard... <laughs> invite them over next Wednesday. They'll come, they'll help you out with it. Yeah, and the other thing about- Do they missionary... come with tools? Do they bring their own tools? No, nope, no, nope. you're going to have to supply the tools. <laughs> no, they are the tools. They yeah. are the tools, Amy. But you know, the, the other thing about missionary work is they work six and a half days a week, usually 12 hours a day. They're, you know, if they're door-to-door -door missionaries, they're on their feet 12 hours a day knocking doors and people are not being very nice to them. Yeah. So <clears throat> I have so, heard stories from returned missionaries that are like, you know what? There was this family that said, we're not buying what you're selling, but you guys are probably hungry. Come in and have a sandwich and just chill out. And you, you know, you can tell them you talk to me. Well, and, and 
you know, just being nice to them is probably the best missionary work that we can do. Because when they, you know, tell them that you're an atheist, say, look, I'm not interested in this. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a God, but let me help you out. Let me, you know, let me be nice to you. It'll blow their damned minds because these are guys who are told that atheists, are especially evil. atheists, are evil, bad people who want the worst for them, who want to oppress them. So when you're the person who's like, come on in, let's have a chat. Sure, you can tell me a little bit about your church or don't because it's going to bore the shit out of you. But <laughs> whatever, you know, you play it your way. But if you're kind to them, uh, I, w I wouldn't try to convince them of anything because missionaries don't have ears. They have mouths. but they They're not in that space. They're not convincible. But that kindness is going to be that little seed yeah. that, you know, in, inside them somewhere is going to kind of bloom into something later. It's very powerful. They're, and they're poor as shit. Like they eat ramen and macaroni and cheese that's like it that's all they can afford so if you if you have a great fried chicken recipe feed them a meal and then and then make them you know rearrange your living and say you guys want to use my laptop while i'm making <laughs> dinner no questions asked yeah great history <laughs> yeah all of that i guess that's us being colonialists isn't it <laughs> i had no idea i have no counter colonialists I have offered people, um, when they offer me literature, I have offered them, I will take your literature if you'll take mine. Mm, there you go. Never, yeah. I've never invited them in. Um, Jim Young, you have your hand up? Well, I, I, I am an activist and I do outreach uh, to religious people and challenge them. And my question is, what would you regard to be the Achilles heel of the Mormon religion. So if you mm. want to put them on the spot and challenge them with something that uh, is going to make them think, uh, what would you challenge them with? Well, Uncle Mark already sort of mentioned the CES letter. Uh, you can find that for free on the internet and just download it. Uh, I, if you, if you really want to challenge Mormons, have a printed out copy of that somewhere in your house and then uh, just hand it to them. It's, uh, you won't necessarily understand what's, what it's asking, but it, it'll blow the, it'll rock their world. The, 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 the Mormon church has multiple, um, Achilles heels. Certainly it's, it's racist. History is one. Um, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's secrecy about, you know, yeah. this hundred billion dollar fund that they just, that got leaked. They didn't actually let anybody know about it. Um, it's treatment of women. Uh, it's so somebody, much. somebody yeah. said something like the interplanetary part. Mormonism is a, is an intergalactic faith. Yes, that's true. Going back to the game Judy wanted to play. It was, uh, like Scientology. God is on or near another planet called Kolob, and every Mormon who dies, uh, every Mormon who dies, every child in the world who dies before the age of eight, every Mormon prophet and every Mormon man, you have to have a penis, that it lives a perfected life, will become God of a planet as we understand God of this planet, the God of this planet, right? You'll become God the Father 
of another planet. So Look, Mormon, Mormons don't love talking about that. <laughs> Mor Mormon theology, Mormonism in One general. follow up. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, earlier, you alluded to uh, possibly a prohibition against uh, masturbation. Oh, yeah. So uh, is that something that uh, these young men, Mormon men, are taught as evil? Oh, yeah. It's second only to murder. <laughs> Literally second only to murder. Well, no. well, sexuality in general. But yes, like, yeah. masturbation is completely verboten, which led me to plenty of guilt. I, uh, I, you know, it's not like I avoided masturbating. I just made sure that I felt like shit about it. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah, and that's, that's again why you, they don't want you to close the bathroom door. Yeah, right? they, don't, they don't let these missionaries close their bathroom doors. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you, have no, you have no privacy, zero, for two years. And then you're, you're under intense pressure when you get home to marry the first girl with a pulse that you can chase down at a bus stop, right? Like you, these kids get married at 21 and the girls are oftentimes 19. And yeah, then you, you say you're under pressure. It's not like everyone else is pressuring you. It's like you want, if you want to have any kind of sexual experience at all. And as a 19 year old, as a former 19 year old boy, I can tell you, you do and <laughs> you have to find somebody and get married real, real, real fast. Yeah. And, and, but you are under social pressure as well. Like your That's bishop true. is like, hurry That's and get true. married. Your parents are like, when are we going to meet your fiance? And you're standing in the, you know, in the door with your suitcases from your mission, like, give me five minutes. So it's, it's, and that leads, of course, leads to all kinds of problems later on where you, you're turning 30, you have five kids and you have no idea who this person you married is. Right. Yeah. So it causes an enormous amount of, of stress in marriages and families. And it's also the solution to homosexuality. Yeah. Just marry anybody. Just marry anybody of the opposite sex. It'll work out. And yeah. guess what? Yeah, exactly. My wife, actually, my wife's first husband was gay. That's right. And they knew it, uh, but they, they were told if they just got married and prayed enough, it would be the, the gayness. You pray the gay away, right? But it, it doesn't seem to work. No. It's a, it's a disaster. It doesn't seem to be that necessarily a, uh, uh, a um, restricted to Mormonism about churches um, restricting and, and um, condemning masturbation. No, no, not at all. And sexuality, no. because people, a lot of people in the group are ca ex-Catholics. I was an ex-fundamentalist, and the, you didn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Amy, you have your hand up? Yeah, I, I I just wanted to make a comment and then I'll ask a question, but I know grown Mormon men have been out of the church, the two of them, that are still having problems with masturbation, even mm -hmm. though they're married and they know it's cool <laughs> and they still can't get over the guilt. They still have problems and their wives, who neither one is from the Mormon faith, just like are who like who are you you know mm -hmm. what kind of man doesn't masturbate anyway um 
so my question earlier was when you were leaving and decided I can no longer be Mormon, did they, did they have like a, not a goon squad, but you know, did they have people come after you and calling you and, and you reaching out to you? Did you have a lot of that or was it, you know, don't let the door, you know, hit you? <clears throat> Mormonism doesn't have, a, you know, unlike a, a, a religion like uh, uh, Jehovah's <clears throat> Witnesses, where they have an, an official shunning that you're supposed to do, you know, with Jehovah, if you leave Jehovah's Witnesses, your family is meant to, to shun you and kick you out and you're never supposed right. to, they're never supposed to see you any, any, anymore. Mormonism isn't like that, but they do buddy up to you. They want, they, they'll fellowship you. They'll be, you know, they want to make, they'll call to make sure you're okay at Christmas. They'll, you know, give you a little thing of goodies just to say, Hey, we're still thinking about you. If you ever want to come back, that sort of thing. Yeah. But they're not, they're, they're not pressing the hard court press, uh, the full court press that is much. They're just, uh, they're, they're, they're too passive aggressive for yeah. that. It's a, it's, a, it's probably the most passive aggressive society in uh in america <laughs> yeah they, they they so they'll do the the combination of the classic cult uh love bombing mm -hmm. that dan's talking about where everybody oh, it's we're worried about you and you know dinners show up and you know people just stop by mormons are a nightmare about stopping by unannounced like my brother used to my oldest brother with 400 kids used to stop by my house any hour of the day or the night with all the kids and I'm like a gay guy that lived in a warehouse and he has no idea what's going on in there. <laughs> you know, they just show up. And so there's a combination of that and that disappointed look that your mother can give you, you know, yeah. just you've disappointed her, you've broken her heart. So, and, and moms, very commonly moms will often do that thing where she makes sure that the bishop of whatever ward you've moved into has your address. So you start getting texts from the Relief Society women in the ward saying, hey, are you coming to church on Sunday? So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's icky, but it's not like you don't get kidnapped necessarily. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the, the, the smiliest mafia you've ever heard of. Okay, yeah, I can, I can, I can imagine that. And, and do, do Mormon children go to special, um, like a parochial school, uh, or do they have... What's how's the education of children done? Not generally. Generally, uh, Mormon kids just go to public school. Standard school, yeah. Okay. But, but in high school, you will take. Sorry to jump on you, Dan. You'll either no, take. No, you got it. Um, a, a period during the day as a free period, or you do it early in the morning and you go across the street to a building that is inches off of public school grounds that belongs to the Mormon Church, which is called seminary where because three-hour church is just not enough on Sundays, mm -hmm. you need an hour a day um, during the school day. So then you get uh, some really, and seminaries where some really toxic shit is, is imparted to these kids. Um, so yeah, they, but they mostly just go to a standard public school. Okay. Oh, thank you, Amy. Um, I didn't thank you. really think this was going to turn into such a question and answer period on Mormons, but that's okay. Interesting. <laughs> I've learned some things I didn't know. Uh, Joe Reinhardt, you have your hand up. Oh, um, yeah, I just want to get back to masturbation for a minute. <laughs> Who doesn't? Uh, of course. 
Did you I'm stop 30, at some point during the conversation? I don't I'm understand. I'm 76 years old, and I'm not going to reveal anything personal. However, Mark mm-hmm. Twain says that the first parts of the Bible that most boys learn are the parts they can masturbate to. Uh, <laughs> so it does have some useful purpose. The Song of Solomon. That's true. The Song of Solomon, I, I once read that if they published it in its unexpurgated form, they would put you in jail for reading the Bible. <laughs> the Comstock would have been all over it. Probably. Well, that's funny because this goes to somebody, uh, Brent had a question in the chat that I saw that said, I, I wonder how many of those missionary pairs discover they are attracted to males. Well, you will not be surprised. It happens. Mm-hmm. It is, it, there are two places gay Mormon boys normally have their first um, sex, same-sex experience. And this is also true of girls, but just remember that far, far, far fewer women, young women go on missions than men. For, for young men, it's requisite for young women, it's 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 kind of up to you. Yeah. Um, so uh, the two places you're going to have your first sexual experience are scouts, the Boy Scouts, which is a Mormon sacrament. You cannot go through being a young man in Mormonism without being a Boy Scout. Until the Boy Scouts of America ruined it by accepting gay guys, and then uh, right, and they broke from them. And so here I was, a young gay guy, and what did my scout troop did? We tied knots. <laughs> we did scouting shit. We like built bridges and it was awesome and it was amazing, but we didn't have any of that like after dark fun. Um, and then the other place you're going to have your first sexual experiences on your mission. And I don't, Dan, do you know a gay return missionary that did not have some kind of encounter on there? Like I know uh, so many. <clears throat> I know so many. I know a lot of, of gay guys who, yes, definitely had a, their first sexual encounters either with one of their mission companions or with somebody that they uh that they taught the church to or something yeah it's it's i i who knows percentage wise but it's common enough yeah that's true well since we're kind of covering so many um secrets about the mormon church we had a burning question come up in our our a discussion we were having about Mormonism a while back, and that is when you leave the church, do you have to get all new underwear? Yes. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for people who, uh, who have been in the church for any period of time as an adult, meaning they've gone through the, the Mormon temple, uh, they, yes, they have to wear uh, a, rec- a, a certain kind of underwear. They call them garments, temple garments, and, uh, and they're they're very long. They, you know, they, they're for men, the top is a t-shirt and the bottom is like sort of like bike shorts almost uh, in length and, and, and design. But baggy and hideous and, and they're just the worst oh, thing in every way. It's the ugliest thing you can imagine. Yeah. There's, they're the least know, sexy thing you will ever see in your life. Yeah, it's like and, wearing a trash bag. And, and it's supposed to be against your body. So women have to wear their bras over the top of their temple garment. So it, it's just the weirdest thing. So yes, if you've been a member of the church for you know a few years of your adult life, you won't have any normal person underwear. So if you leave the church, one of the sort of rites of passage of people leaving the Mormon church is going out and deciding to get real normal underwear and realizing that they get to choose what it looks like and what style it's going to be and do they want it to be sexy or do they want it to just be utilitarian? And, and, they, and oh my God, I can buy undergarments that actually support my bits. Yeah. Um, and it is a big rite of passage. Like 
First of all, we did a segment on garments and you could, if you go to our website, you could just search garments and it'll come up. If you know any Mormons or even ex-Mormons and you want them to, and your friends, and you want that to stay that way, do not talk about the garments. It is of all the things. You can talk about the interplanetary shit. You can talk about moon quakers, which is another thing. You can talk about... Uh, um, probably even the racial stuff, but do not, for some fucking reason, do not talk about the garments. It's very intense for them. Some of them, yeah, it's really intense. Some of them have a lot, it's a big journey to let go of the garments, to take them off. You know, when you're, when you're Mormon, you're not supposed to, like, like when you're retiring a pair because they're worn out or whatever, you have to like go through, you have to cut, there are symbols sewn into them. So you have to cut the symbols out. And then like, there's some people burn them. Other people cut them into pieces. My parents used them as rags around the house to like clean the house. Which I've never heard of that. Your parents were very utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, so when people leave the church and they finally decide to get rid of their garments, almost all of them have this mental thing where it's like, how do I get rid of them? Do I do all the things? Do I cut the things out and cut it into pieces? Or do I just crumple them up and throw them in the garbage? They, it's a freak out moment. It's really interesting. I, I, so I, was, I knew a guy years ago that was a, a very gay, big gay dude here in Salt Lake. He owned a nightclub that was very, you know, it was an LGBTQ nightclub. He was, hadn't been a Mormon for 25 years. He was moving. And so he asked a bunch of us that went to the club if we'd come help him move. And so I showed up for him. And uh, I was taking his dresser apart to, so we could get it down the stairs. And I pulled out a drawer and there were very obviously to me as a person who knows this stuff, there were Mormon garments in that drawer. And I, I laughed about it. And I said, dude, what are you doing with these? And he said, leave those alone. And he took the drawer and ran out of the room. He'd been, he'd been a atheist gay nightclub owner for 20 years or more. And he was still, had a very intense relationship with his garments. So mind you, there is another response to that, which is uh, some people actually fetishize them and then it ends up being like a turn on for them, which is a little bit, which is kind of hilarious. Are they comfy at least cotton or what? No. Well, I mean, they are, I think, I think you can get cotton ones now Uh, for the longest time. They were just sort of a polyester. Polyester, Yeah. you can, look, you can look them up online, Mormon garments, and they're just poochy, and they were not made to fit the human body <laughs> of any no. shape. Like, they're awful. Hmm. Now that you say that they were polyester, I was going to make the comment, like, there's probably no problem with male infertility wearing that kind of underwear. <laughs> well, Mormons, Mormons don't seem to suffer from infertility. They are, they are a fertile people. It's yes. True. Yeah, my my family of four children was looked down on as practically barren when I was growing up. Yeah, it's not uncommon for for Mormon families to have, you know. Judy, when you made your comment earlier, I all I could think of because I come from a Jewish background is, well, if you're no longer wearing your prayer shawl, can you use it as a scarf? You know, <laughs> can just wrap it around a few times now. A yarmulke could make a good coaster in a pinch. Yeah, sure, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say we had a friend who's an atheist for a long time and when he died we went through and found all of his old Jewish, his prayer shawl, his all this accoutrement that went with it. I was really surprised that he had 
that he still had them. Yeah. Well, the Mormons have, have, have done, they have kind of tried to walk into the Jewish space. And okay, Mormonism and Judaism is a whole different thing. Mormons claim to be one of the lost tribes of Israel and they, they consider themselves honorary Jews. Most of my Jewish friends fall out of their chairs when I tell them that. But um, <clears throat> they did try to, because the, the folklore of the Mormon garments used to be that they were literally bulletproof and they were fireproof. And they could stop, you know, the devil himself couldn't get through them. If you were faithful, mind you. If you're faithful, which, of course, faith faith doesn't fail. You can only fail faith. Mm -hmm. So it led me to, in Sunday school, one day asking, well, why don't we have them like Spider-Man that cover everything? Right. Because, you know, I I don't want to get shot in the head either. And I was kicked out of that lesson for that. But anyway, so when the Mormons started trying to neutralize the absurdity of that folklore, uh, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, they said, no, 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 no. They're, they're, don't, they're none of that. They are an expression of your faith, like a yarmulke or a hijab or a prayer shawl. And it's like, okay, those are things on the outside. <laughs> right. So that is a Jew saying, I am a Jew. I want you to know that by, by what I am wearing where I don't know what your underwear are. Yeah. To a very keen Mormon eye, you can see them. We know what to look for under the clothes. We can see them. But um, nobody else would have any idea that that was an expression of your faith, right? right. It's an, Michael, it's an, you have another question? It, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, there. no, no, go ahead, go, go ahead. Michael, you had a question? Oh, I'm finding what you're saying now about the underwear kind of interesting because if I'm not mistaken, uh, Wavoko was actually raised by the Mormons. And I think he got his idea of the ghost shirts from that underwear, and that ended up leading to a big disaster at Wounded Knee. The ghost dance. Yeah. yeah. There is evidence to support that. We did an episode on Wavoka. And when I started, so Wavoka, for those of you who don't know, was I think was a Paiute um, Native American. Um, he was called a weather healer. He was kind of a, a, a magic guy capable of some kind of magic and uh, became this very important figure because he, he invented what became the ghost dance that a lot of native populations would do because the idea was it would make the white people go the fuck away. <laughs> and that led to, I think it was uh, Wounded Knee, uh, the massacre at Wounded Knee, if I'm correct. Right. And that was, the whole idea was they were wearing the ghost shirts, which were going to protect them from the bullets. As long as they were wearing the ghost shirts, they couldn't be hurt by any bullets or any That's weapon. right. And there is evidence to support that there was enough Mormon influence around Wavoka that the garments, at, and at that time, the Mormons did believe that they would stop a bullet, that that is the, the origin of his, of his magic there. And the lesson to be learned from this story is don't trust the Mormons. Whatever you do, especially if you're a Native American, do not trust the Mormons. Yeah. Yeah, that's just kind of what I was going to say. I mean, it seems to me like the Mormons prey a lot on Native Americans. Like even today, there's a big problem in like the Navajo reservations and stuff like that, where the Mormons, if I'm not mistaken, they get actually a lot of converts from Native Americans. There, um, yeah, we also did an episode on their kind of predacious behavior and then on specifically the Navajo Nation, um, which was... Uh, I, I, there were a couple upsides to it, but it was mostly just a very disgusting thing. And for those of you who don't know, their thing, their, the Mormon intensity about Native Americans is because 
Native Americans. Brace yourselves. Just hold on to something. Native Americans are Jews that came to the Americas originally in about 4,000 BC, and that that colony didn't work out, but about 3,000 BC. No, it was like 600 BC. Sorry, 600 BC. E, they came to the Americas that had no people in them. Yeah, they, they came on a boat. They came out from of Jerusalem. Jerusalem on a boat and landed somewhere in the Americas. And that's where we got the Native Americans from. If you, uh, whoever was asking earlier about the, uh, the Achilles heel of Mormonism, the whole Book of Mormon, the founding document of the thing, is just one big Achilles. Matter of fact, if the Mormon church were an Achilles, it would be 97% heel. So don't, it's all, it's all heel. Actually, that yeah. was kind of, I was wondering, that was kind of like related to my question. I'm just wondering, because you mentioned that you take on a lot of religious beliefs. I mean, are these mostly European religious beliefs or do you take on any Native American religious beliefs? Because what I see a lot is a, there's sort of this idea of the untouchability of Native American beliefs because they're supposed to be um, based in uh, you know native beliefs, but a lot of them actually have a lot of new way, new uh, new age beliefs in them. Like for yeah, instance, we we specifically discussed the what's called the Native American Church in one episode, which is really more just white people, right? Uh, right taking it on, and but no, we we talk a lot about Mormonism because if this hasn't shown you, we know a little bit about it, but um, we we try to be very globalist in our examination of bad ideas. And here's the other thing is it's not even that they're all bad ideas. There is stuff about religion. That's just fucking magnificent. Like it is, it, you know, it, it was our first attempt to explain the world as a, as a species. It was many of, you know, many, many, many first attempts. And so I think a lot of it has to be understood. You're an anthropologist, of course, a lot of us, a lot of it has to be understood through that lens. Um, but no, we've, we talk about, uh, we've talked about, oh, Chinese beliefs. We've talked about uh, we've talked about Native American gods. Uh, Mets. What was the fart one, Dan? Matt Shishkapu. Matt Shishkapu. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about uh, uh, Taiwa. I think who was a a um, believed to be an Anasazi god. Um, and uh, yeah, so we 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 try to be very ecumenical. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Michael. Jim Peterson, you had another question. Yes, um, I'm just, I've always been curious about how uh, a man like Joseph Smith back at the beginning of the 19th century would amass, uh, from what I understand, he was just uh, a regular working person of no particular educational attainment. How did he acquire the information to actually write the book, even despite all the numerous errors and contradictions in it? Plagiarism. Uh, A lot of plagiarism. Like there are... 18 chapters of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? Yeah, he just, he just stole from the Bible. He stole from, a, from another book that had been published around that time frame. Called The Late War, another one called A View of the Hebrews, which was a, a preacher that was prominent in where Joseph Smith was from uh, in upstate New York, which was called the Burned Over District, where there was, whatever reason, <clears throat> the mud of the Burned Over District was where a lot of American the madness of kind of 19th century American religions came out of. So what became the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Shakers and the Mormons all came out of that same place. Um, And there was a preacher going around, I can't remember his name, but he had this pamphlet called A View of the Hebrews, which was 
which propounded Jews oftentimes are brown skinned and have large noses. Mm. Native Americans oftentimes are brown skinned and ha have large noses. Therefore, ipso facto, they are the same people. Voila. Voila. Native Science. Americans are Jews. Science, right? Is there, is so, there, is there any, any doubt that he actually knew that he was a con man? You know, here's the thing. I, I have, we have studied so many different cults, different religious people. I think he's, he must have started out knowing that he was doing something that wasn't true. But I would, I would have no problem believing that somewhere along the line. He, I think he got caught up in it. He just believed it because yeah. that's how human brains work. If you repeat a lie enough times, and especially if you're, I mean, he's, the, we're talking about who was somebody who was probably just a charis, charismatic narcissist. You know what I mean? He was nobody. And when he died, he had what? 20,000 disciples. Dan, wasn't it around yeah, some, 20? Something like that. I don't, I'm not sure the exact number. He had founded whole cities in a, in a decade, in a decade, this guy so, had created this thing. So I mean, he here, clearly, we, here we have, uh, we have in, in our local area, Scientologists. <laughs> And I believe that, that L. Ron Hubbard probably duplicates that experience. That, that I, those that. two share so much DNA, I can't even tell you. And, and as do the churches and kind of what shook out of them, right? Yeah. The, I think L. Ron Hubbard and Joseph Smith are kind of the two, Ameri the two great American huckster prophets out of, out of many. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they stand out for sure. Yeah. You must be in the Clearwater area. Yeah. Yeah. You, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> That's okay. It makes life interesting. Joe Reinhardt, you had something else? Well, yes. Uh, uh, again, uh, someone has sort of stepped on my question before I got to it, but uh, I've had occasion to look over the Book of Mormon. You, you can find them in hotel rooms right next to the Gideon's Bible. Yep. And I was struck with the fact that almost all of it looked like it was just lifted word for word right out of the New Testament. So you know, plagiarize, plagiarize, let no one else's work evade your eyes. That's uh, right. certainly the, the theme here. A little Tom yeah. Lehrer deep cut right there. Thank you very much. If <laughs> you got, it's, it sounds like both Jim and Joe are, are versed enough with, the, with the, um, the Book of Mormon that you might actually find the CES letter very interesting because he will, what the, the author, the amateur just guy who just wanted answers as a former missionary took, um, just passages out of a book like this children's book about the war of 1812 called the late war and shows five pages of the same text in the book of Mormon. And then he's like, what are the mathematical, what is the mathematical possibility that this could have happened? Right. And all, I wouldn't say word for word names were changed. So it didn't say like, you know, Andrew Jackson or whatever it said Moroni. Right. So he just, he just lifted whole passages and then dan and i have this theory that when he wasn't plagiarizing he was just vamping yeah. because because he dictated this thing orally to his buddy who was on the other side of some dirty towel in right. their attic right and so you can just feel when it's when it's, the plagiarism stops and there's just like ah uh, then um the guy and he like it's just wandering it's funny because Mar somebody mentioned Mark Twain earlier. Mark Twain read the Book of Mormon and called it chloroform in print. To which, <laughs> by the way, 
Then uh, 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 Christopher Hitchens later said, accused Twain of hitting too close to the mark, considering that it has a book in it called Ether, which I think is very cute. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is possibly the most boring book ever written. It is impossible to enjoy reading. It is, it is just work to get through that book. It, and in part because it's a, you know, a mid-1800s guy with, as you, as, as you modest out, education, very little education, mimicking, you know, 1600s English, because he's just trying to make it sound like the, the New uh, Testament, the, 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 the King James Bible, which makes no sense because it's meant to be a direct translation of, of, you know, the writings of, you know, Jews who came across, uh, across uh, the ocean so why would it sound like uh, Elizabethan you know, or whatever it was? English. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Jacobian English. It didn't make any sense at all, but yet that's what, it, and so like the number of instances of the phrase, it came to pass and the phrase verily, the word verily are it's, it's, it's in the hundreds and hundreds. Like. It's literally like 2% of the book. Is the that came to pass. Speaking of the Book of Ether, and I know you guys, we're probably ending here, but it's yeah. speaking of the Book of Ether, the Book of Mormon, we did a segment on, on that book and specifically the unpropelled, unventilated, wooden pre-Columbian submarines That's that right. the Jews came from Jerusalem, through the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, and landed in the New World in. So that's, uh, we did some math on, on in, the literal, in literal wooden submarines. Now, if you yeah. can figure out how that works, full I'm of impressed. livestock and bees. Yeah. Also, it turned around. It 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 was like a yeah. It didn't like have. It specifically says it doesn't have a keel or a rudder, and then it would just turn different ways in the in the the waves. So we called it like the devil's own shake and bake. Yeah, it was just. It's good it luck was, surviving a year at sea in that thing. Joseph Smith was a lot of things, but a shipwright he ain't, <laughs> no. so there you go. Well, I, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close it down unless somebody else has another question. Um, Joe has his hand up again. Oh, yes. I just want to point out that I've always said that Mormonism is a religion that has one too many M's. Yes. That's <laughs> Classic. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate your openness well, and your humor. Great. Oh, thank you. It was well, wonderful to be here. It was really terrific to talk to you guys. Well, we're, we think it was really terrific to have you guys. We've learned a lot. Um, I did want to say that um, Gary in the chat said that Elbron is a, a reincarnation of uh, Joseph Smith. And could be. That although, could be. Although, although Hubbard was far more prolific in his writing than, than Joe was. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but very poor writing, I have to say. <laughs> Well, they share that. That's true. Um, and uh, Michael says that the idea of Native Americans being Jewish for, uh, far predates the Mormons. They just that's right. And that's why that, I, that preacher had that book. Right. So if you guys are interested, look, uh, look up the CES letter and it, it cites uh, uh, like the view of the Hebrews and how that Did was. Did the Jews know this? <laughs> They should. I'm just learning this. I didn't know uh, this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll be shocked to learn that Jew that, that Mormonism will would call you a Gentile.